This is episode number 53 with Diana Cap, the author of Girls Who Run the World. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back. I've got a very interesting show lined up for you today. I've brought on Diana Cap, who is the author of a book called Girls Who Run the World, 31 CEOs Who Mean Business. Diana interviewed women like Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. She interviewed the founders of Rent the Runway, Stitch Fix, Pop Sugar, Glossier, Soul Cycle, 23andMe, and many more. Now, the intention behind the book was to help empower young girls and young women to expect to grow up to be CEOs, to inspire these girls and young women with the idea that what you see, you can be. And so as we do on this podcast, she did it through stories, interviewing these women and telling their really remarkable stories of not just creating success, but the failures that they overcame and the tenacity that they used to create the success that we see today. So about today's guest, Diana is a journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Elle Magazine, Marie Claire, Oprah Magazine, and many other outlets. I know you're going to love this conversation because I know you care about empowering other women as well as the future generations of girls. So here we go. Welcome, Diana. Thank you for joining me today. I, I'm really excited to be on the show. Thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, so I um, found you on LinkedIn because you wrote an open letter to Forbes um, because they did a ranking of the 100 most innovative leaders where they only listed one woman. And you wrote, quote, if America's most innovative list of leaders lists as list as Forbes published Friday elevates 99 men and one woman, it is time to rethink how we define innovative and leaders. And I was like, literally high-fiving you through the computer. I'm like, who is this woman? I love what she's standing for. And then I discovered that you wrote this amazing book, Girls Run the World, 31 CEOs Who Mean Business. And I thought, okay, I got to get Diana on and learn more about you. But you've had an interesting background. Uh, your bio says that you've um, your work has taken you inside inside San Quentin Prison to deepest Afghanistan. Uh, you've worked for a senator, a biotech company, done ads for Nike. You got your MBA at Stanford. You've lived in Kenya. So, get us into your take us into your story, Diana. How did you get into the world of journalism? So I'm definitely not one of those career people who knew what she wanted to do from the very beginning. I'm, I like think of myself as like pinging around inside a pinball machine 
And then when I like knock against something, when it goes ding, 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 then I know like I'm moving in the right direction and I keep going. So um, I was a little girl who really never had big ambitions for herself. I was um, in third grade at Chevy Chase Elementary School and we had a big day that was the career fair. And we had about 50 workshops to choose from. And I attended cake decorating and hairdressing. (laughs) And I just laugh because, I mean, I actually am kind of crafty and I Mm -hmm. love um, all of those kind of things. But I, I grew up in a pretty traditional household. My mom did work. She was a teacher. But her career was always very secondary to my dad, who was kind of a high profile lawyer. And I just didn't get messages as a girl that, you know, you can do big things in the world and you're very smart. Um, And, you know, even later in my life, when I got accepted to Stanford Business School, you know, my dad, bless him because he's amazing. But his reaction to me was, um, what? You did? I'm just amazed. I'm amazed. Mm -hmm. You know, so he just, it was kind of outside of our wheelhouse because we're, you know, we were a Washington family and we, we, business wasn't a realm that we had, um, had a lot of experience or exposure to. So I think that's more what his reaction was, Mm -hmm. but I think there was also a little piece of it that was just disbelieving in me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also, you know, I had a wandering eye. So I was like this little girl that first wore a patch over one eye and then I wore bifocals. So I had kind of like a funny, um, awkward growing up. Um, And, you know, where this book really came from is I have this just most powerful daughter that came out of the womb literally with her hands on her hips. Um, ready to issue orders, you know, first to her dolls and then to all of us forced to play school. Um, (laughs) She is able to lead an army or a nation and definitely a company. But I had to ask myself, you know, would that be possible for her? Because things in the business world for women in leadership are really stuck. And Um, When I graduated from Stanford in 1996, there were zero women CEOs in the Fortune 500. And now it's 25 years later, and there's just 6% women in the Fortune 500. And it's a headline-making event when one more woman gets added. That happened this summer. The Mm -hmm. CEO of Bed Bath & Beyond got added to the list as like the 33rd CEO and, you know, it, it made headlines all over the nation. Um, so I guess I just, um, I just really feel from my own personal experience, you know, as a girl who didn't have big ambitions and then as the mother of a girl who somehow came out into this world as just like this mega power, I just, I'm really drawn to this idea that girls can't be what they can't see Mm -hmm. and there aren't enough role models out there. A lot of the ways that we learn about interesting women like you and I is reading Fast Company magazine or listening to the How I Built This podcast, but these aren't places that girls are listening and watching 
reading. And, um, you know, you can go into a bookstore and you can find a lot of really interesting um, biographies of people like Amelia Earhart and Sojourner Truth and Ray Jameson, and they're all very amazing pioneers. But you can't find stories that are about the pioneering women of the modern age. And they are just as much disrupting industries and change making as all of those women I mentioned. Um, so that was the idea is to just showcase a bunch of modern pioneers um, that are disrupting, you know, personal genetic tests and the construction industry bringing uh, blueprints online so that you can save $30,000 every time you don't need to print out a set of, you know, giant blueprints mm. or remaking um, the apparel industry so that we're renting instead of buying like they're doing at Rent the Runway, which is really impacting, you know, the environment and taking on the whole notion of fast fashion as something that's just incredibly wasteful. So, um, these women have amazing stories and I think stories is really the best way to learn about interesting ideas. Like you get, you get wrapped up in a story and then all of a sudden you've learned all these interesting lessons. Absolutely. And actually that's what this podcast is. It's sharing women's stories to show what's possible. I absolutely hundred percent agree with you can't be what you can't see. You need to be able to see it to be it. And it's interesting. I'm very excited about your book. I use every opportunity to show my daughter uh, powerful women. And so Anytime, you know, it could be there was Chan Lu who does uh, jewelry and I have some of her pieces are sold at like Bloomingdale's. Somehow I saw something about her and I was watching her story and I thought it was inspiring. And I called my daughter over. I'm like, you need to look at this. She wasn't born in this country. Look what she's accomplished. But to have it in one place, I, I think a, you're hitting a need that a lot of us moms feel in the market. And I think even if you don't have kids, I would buy this book just because it would be interesting to see how these women got started and, you know, what inspired them to keep going and to, to create what it is that they created. So um, I think it's fantastic. And, and, it, and it almost doesn't even matter that they're female entrepreneurs. I really feel this way. Like I wrote the book with this idea of inspiring teen girls and young women, but the more I think about it and talk about the book out in public, I really feel like these are just interesting entrepreneurs. They're founding some of the biggest new ideas of our time and anybody can enjoy these stories and can take something from these women that have created something out of nothing um, and really understand like what it means to be entrepreneurial and to follow your own path and to like go from the gut. There's so much of an emphasis right now on girls and perfectionism and kind mm -hmm. of being good in school and being good girls. Um, and I think that it's really great for them to see people that were kind of, you know, they didn't take the path that mm -hmm. was you know, so conventional and, you know, maybe they decided to leave high school after junior year, like the, you know, woman who's founded one of my favorite stories in the book is Jessie Ganae mm -hmm. and her company is Lumi, L-U-M-I. And I call her the girl who's packaging the internet because she is, she's 
was obsessed as a young girl with printing and screen printing and making t-shirts. And she left her Michigan high school after junior year to go to Los Angeles and attempt to sell t-shirts. And she's now got this massive business where she does all the printing of boxes for companies like Stitch Fix, Mm. Everlane, Parachute Home, um, like some of the biggest direct-to-consumer brands on the internet right now. And they all need all this customized packaging because since you no longer have that in-store interaction with the brand, Mm. the box is the brand. So printing all of a sudden becomes really important. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. And actually, I'll take it a step back. So you talked about being a young girl feeling like, you know, maybe not that ambitious in terms of what the vision for your future is. But even when you are, I remember being third grade and they brought a local TV uh, reporter who was well known and he came in and he was asking all of the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember standing up and raising my hand, he called on me and I said, I want to be a lawyer, which I did think I want to be. And I did go into (laughs) working at a law firm, but um, he said, okay, secretary. He heard secretary. I said, lawyer. And so this was- Wow, that's crazy. Right? So it was interesting to me. And I remember feeling it in my body, like, that's not what I said. I was very clear. And so he couldn't even hear a young girl. So let's see, third grade, I don't know, I was born in 1971, right? So this was, (laughs) you know, late 70s or something. And so, um, you know, or- I just went on a tour of uh, women artists at a museum in San Diego, and they were showing like Jackson Pollock. His wife is an artist, very accomplished artist, and she was always introduced as Jackson Pollock's wife not as right, an artist right. unto her own. So we we have a lot, like you said, with all the stats you said and everything, I mean, we've got a long way to go. And part of it is uh, what was a cultural norm and how things are shifting. And I think it's important what you also pointed out with this idea that girls have to be good girls and perfect. And then you go on to social and everything's overly curated and it's not real. And so um, I love that you you know, in these conversations with these women, we're also talking about their challenges. So let's get into how you approach the book, though. So you have this idea, like, how did how did it come up? Like, I'm going to go out and interview these these CEOs. How did it start? Well, I I have a lot of book ideas from time to time. And I know that when I have a really strong idea that like in this case, the proposal, I wrote it in like two weeks. Like Mm. it just came right out of me onto the paper. And I just, I was, the way it actually, like the light bulb moment was I was walking home one day, listening to Sarah Blakely Mm. tell the Spanx story on the How I Built This Mm -hmm. podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Mm -hmm, Me too. And she was, you know, her story is so amazing. Like she was talking about how she, you know, cold called her way into Neiman Marcus. She, when she couldn't find a lawyer that she could afford, she wrote her own patent, you know, using a book that she got at a bookstore. She went, she took a week off work and just like drove around to factories in North Carolina looking for a manufacturer that would prototype some samples of her hose. And then the best story is once she got her red boxes stocked in Neiman Marcus, she went in to kind of like make the first visit of them 
and she sees that they're kind of like hidden in this dusty corner, like in the hosiery hinterland. And she was so bummed and she was just like, this will not do. No one will find them. And certainly no one will buy them. And she just like ditched out to target and got a, like a little cardboard rack and she snuck it back in, in her coat. And then she set up those hose boxes, her hose boxes right at the register. Hmm. And she just, she just pretended she belonged. She just tells this whole story about how she's like, I'm not asking permission. I'm just pretending like I look like I know what I'm doing. And when I heard this story, I just thought to myself, God, like everything I want my daughter to be about and to understand about how to do things and be scrappy and like go after it is in this story. And that was this moment that I thought, you know, I should write these stories down in a way that a young girl would find them interesting and would be drawn to them and make it illustrated. And my book has these absolutely beautiful illustrations mm-hmm. um, by Bijou Carmen, who's a Los Angeles illustrator who's right now like completely breaking out in her career. And she's doing work for Prada and Rolling Stone. And um, she's, she, the, the illustrations are one of the best parts of the book and just make it really accessible. And there's a lot of tips. And I asked all the women things like, you know, advice for your 13 year old self and, you know, your favorite candy and your first job and just, you know, different little memories from childhood. So those are just fun things that a girl can kind of look through and look at. Yeah, and I saw, and I was going to actually ask you about the illustrations because I saw that it was illustrations versus photographs, and they're very cool. And I was wondering if that was part of the original plan or something the publisher had brought into it. No, I actually one of my friends at the San Francisco Writers Grotto where I work. She, it's a cooperative of writers, and she created a platform to try to bring more visibility to female illustrators. Mm. And it's called Women Who Draw. And it's just www.womenwhodraw.com. And you can look through thousands of illustrators and like in a very beautiful format. So you can see like a large um, print of something they've created. And I, that's, I found Bijou there. So I actually brought her with the project to the, illustra- to the publisher. And I was told like, they never will take an illustrator. They always mm-hmm. do it in-house. But I actually was really pleased because they did take it. And the process of selling the book was just like lightning fast. I wrote the proposal and um, we sent it out and to like five different places. And I, by the next day, I had an offer from basically every single one of them. Wow. They got it. They and, got it. I love that. Yeah. Great. I think they got it. And I think my own, what I think is a great trick for other people that are writing a book proposal is I paid a little bit of money to this great designer, Laura Debelay, who's, um, she's a cousin of my husband. And so the proposal like looked amazing too. It had a beautiful cover on it. And we used some of these illustrations that had, you know, that Bijou had already done. They weren't actually of the women in the book, but we just Mm. pretended they were. Um, (laughs) But I do think, you know, it does matter. Like if the whole thing looks great and you can kind of envision what this is going to be, I think it's very helpful. Well, it sounds like you did have a very clear vision, but did you have a list in your mind or how did that come about in terms of who was actually in the book? 
I wanted to pick people that have great stories that have like twists and turns and not everything went right. I wanted every girl who reads this book to be able to see herself in one of these stories. So I wanted, you know, immigrant stories and I wanted stories of someone who didn't go to college or people that, you know, came up through, you know, their state school and, you know, maybe their parents didn't go to college. And then there's, you know, highly pedigreed MIT and Stanford Business School graduates. So I really tried to cast a wide net and just read a lot of stories and talk to a lot of different women. And when I would find a great um, entrepreneur or CEO, then I would ask her, who do you love and admire? Mm, And she has a great story. And so I was kind of triangulating that way. And it took a ton of hustle to get to these women because I sold the book in June and I had a manuscript due by October. That whole summer, I was just doing everything I could to like find out who sits on whose board and who might know someone who knows someone who can get me to this, to Sarah Blakely or talking to venture capitalists and finding out like who are the unheard of women in your portfolio that you think are super interesting and you know, I had never heard of Jesse Ganey at Lumi, but I have a friend who's a venture capitalist who said, you've got to meet this gal. She's really cool. Mm. Um, and so that was, that's how I went about it. Okay. So who was the first CEO that you interviewed? The first CEO I interviewed, um, God, I can't even remember. It might've been like Lisa Sugar at Pop Sugar because mm. she is a, um, our kids go to school together. Um, and yeah, I started with people like Leslie Blodgett, uh, who founded Bare Minerals and sold it to Shishido mm. for $1.7 billion. She's someone who I had written about when I, um, back for Marie Claire, I profiled her. Mm. So I, um, she was an early one. And then she actually is on Sarah Blakely's advisory board. So that was how I met Sarah. Love this. And did you meet um, them in person or was it by phone? How did you conduct the interviews or was it a combination? It was a combination. Like wherever I could, I met them in person. I was in Sun Valley for a vacation and I got to meet Anne with Jicky. She was of 23 and Me. Mm-hmm. She was at the Allen and Company conference in Sun Valley. So I just worked it so I could hustle over and meet her at the lodge for an hour and have a chance to talk to her in person because I just think it makes for much better interviews. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to really connect with these women and, you know, a good number of them I've really, you know, been getting to know in a real way. And that's Mm -hmm. definitely the most fun part of the whole project is, you know, meeting these very interesting, smart, creative women who, you know, are just going for it. And I love learning about their lives and, you know, surprising things like, you know, many of the women in the book have three and four children. It's Mm -hmm. not just, you know, it's, it's, it's possible, you know, all kinds of things are possible. When I interviewed um, the Birchbox founder, Katya Beauchamp, Mm -hmm. she was on bed rest with her fourth child and she had spent six months in bed in a hospital in New York city. And she continued running her company and, you know, she just had like such a way about her of being like so present and giving me so much time. And it was, you know, mm-hmm. I was really moved by her. I love this because they saw the value in it too. 
I'm curious, were there any common traits that these women had in common that you saw any themes running through as you interviewed them? There's a story that I tell that is like, this is the characteristic. I'll I'll tell it by way of a story, but I saw this streak in like every one of the women. So Jen Hyman, who founded Rent the Runway, she was a student at Harvard Business School at the time. And she uh, wanted to go and have a meeting with Diane von Furstenberg. That was just what came to her mind. It's like, who could we go and meet and that maybe would rent us some of her dresses as like an early test, Mm. who's like a veteran of the industry and, you know, might love this idea. So first of all, what she did was in order to find her email, she just completely guessed off the top of her head, like what are all the permutations of like, Diane VF at Diane von Furstenberg.com and DVF at DVF.com until one didn't bounce. And she actually got a response. And Diane said, um, I will make time for you if you come here on Friday at, you know, three o'clock. I'll, mm. I'll spend 30 minutes with you and your partner, Jenny. So they drive down from Boston. They rent a car. They buy Diane von Furstenberg dresses to go to the meeting. They have to Love name it. their company, which they do on the way. But they're 10 minutes outside of Manhattan and Jen's cell phone rings and it's Diane's assistant. And she says, Hey, Jen, I'm so sorry to say this, but I'm going to have to cancel today's meeting. Something's come up for Diane. And honestly, she, this just isn't an idea she's going to pursue. So I'm not going to reschedule the meeting. And what Jen did at that moment is she says into her phone, she says, what? What? I, I don't hear you. My cell phone is cutting out. I'll see you in 10 minutes. <laughs> I love it. It's just like I heard that story. I just like could not believe it. That I anyone would have that. the wherewithal. Wow. And I mean, the wow. word that comes to mind is like moxie. Absolutely. It's like a certain scent of like, I am here. I am going to do this. And just like not taking no for an answer, like having total chutzpah and cojones, like that's what these women have in common. They, you know, like Sarah Blakely, like she jumps out to Target Mm -hmm. and brings in her own rack. Mm -hmm. There's another really great story in the book is um, the founder of Cool House Ice Cream, Natasha Mm -hmm. Case. And she wanted to launch, she was like on a total shoestring and she decided I can't afford a retail location, but I want to launch at Coachella, this hipster outdoor concert in the desert outside of Los Angeles. I want to do it in a food truck because that is affordable. But even a food truck, she couldn't afford. So she bought off Craigslist, this old mail truck on um that she got on Craigslist for like, you know, $2,000 and it, but it had no engine. And what she figures out is everyone who joins AAA road service for their new vehicle mm. gets a one free 200 mile tow. So she gets her mail truck towed. No to way. Ella. She does. That's how they launch. And then they got like, you know, people love them and bloggers wrote about them and that story got out and you know that was the beginning so just says you just if you hear those stories you know what the women have in common it's this sort of you know incredible gutsiness mm-hmm. they're gutsy girls 
Gutsy you know? girls. Love it. Um, anything about their childhood? I don't know how far back you went when you interviewed them, but anything uh, about how they were raised that impacted their success? I, I actually do think there's a lot of good lessons for parents in how some of these women were raised. And it's like letting go of the perfectionism mm. and allowing them to be who they are. So um, Lisa Sugar, who founded Pop Sugar, you know, she was obsessed with talk, late night talk shows and popular culture and all the um, movie stars and gossip about them ever since she was like a seven-year-old girl mm. who liked to stay up until like one in the morning watching the late night shows. Mm. And her parents, I mean, they went with that. They went with that and allowed it. And it was because she wasn't doing that because she was like a goof off. Like she really loved this stuff <laughs> and followed it. Um, and then, you know, later she turns it into this incredible business. Um, and, you know, I heard stories like, you know, Sarah Blakely talks about how her dad, you know, never asked her to share like something that went well mm -hmm. that day at school, but rather to share like, oh, what screwed up today? So kind of normalizing the idea that like life is just so full of things that go right and lots of things that go wrong. Absolutely. This is so powerful. And so did you learn anything that surprised you? Were you like, oh, I didn't expect that? Anything that was curious about it when meeting with these women? Hmm. I mean, I guess I was just struck by, you know, how how thick skinned they are. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't think of women as being that way. And I think they're really unusual in that way that you can go and have 30 no's or have your Harvard professor like Katrina Lakes tell you that your idea is an inventory nightmare and still have kind of this centered feeling in your stomach. That's like, you know what? I, I really believe in my idea and I'm going to keep pursuing it. Um, it's, it was surprising to me to meet women that have that kind of confidence. I think it's rare. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting because I do think that, take a Sarah Blakely, for example, I think no matter what she did, she would be at a huge, you know, a level of success that we see her at. I think they have something within them that uh, creates that success because of that that you use the guts. They just have guts to just keep going regardless of hearing no's or any roadblocks that come in the way. But I think it's an important lesson for all of us because we all hit that. And on the show, we talk about that when I interview entrepreneurs. Success is something you define on your own terms. So this is what, you know, the idea is that you get to create what you want in your life and that it isn't all easy. It's not what you see these curated images online. It's a lot of sweat equity and hard work and rejection and a lot of other things. So let's bring it back to girls though, Diana. I mean, why do you believe that girls underrate, underestimate themselves? And how do you think we can change that? It's the, the research and everything you read is like so depressing because it's really like this overwhelming phenomenon that mm. girls, you know, 23% of girls when they're in middle school will already tell you, I will never achieve my dream career or I'm not smart enough to have my dream career. Yeah. And then that, and then that gets worse as the girls get into high school, they lose more of their sense of, of self-confidence. Mm. 
And I just think there are so many cultural messages that are coming at girls about like what they have to be. And they have to be, they have to be beautiful. They have to be perfect. Now they have to be like into STEM. It's just, it's almost impossible for anyone to think about like, who am I and what, what do I want to be? Because there's all these messages coming at them, telling them, you know, what is the right way to be? And, you know, I, I was just very struck by, you know, this, how girls are always underestimating their Mm -hmm. intelligence. And there was a really interesting study I read about a Harvard professor that is studying why so few women pursue economics degrees as undergraduates. And so she looked at women who came in and professed that as their intended major. And then after they took the first course in the track, like the entry-level course, if they did not get an A in that course, if they got a B or a C, Mm -hmm. they were, with a B, they were twice as likely to drop out as males. And with a C, they were four times as likely to drop out as males. So it's like they're looking for confirmation of not being good enough. You know, it's like that's the bias that they go in with. And I think that just, I think it has to do with, you know, how we raise girls not Mm -hmm. to take enough risk or we're like overly protective of them and we worrying so much about always doing the right thing. And so then, you know, not having enough falling down and getting the thick skin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are all the kinds of things that I think, that I think can change. And then, you know, what's a girl going to think when she sees the Forbes list? That is, Mm -hmm. this is not like an ancient problem. This is a modern day problem Mm -hmm. that a list will still get published under the title America's hundred most innovative leaders. And it will be 99 men. It's impossible for a girl growing up in that culture and climate to think I belong at that table. And I'm somebody who's deeply hopeful, and I do think that things are changing. I do think that with like books like yours and more images and more people calling stuff out, like, hey, a list of 100 most innovative leaders, how is it that there's only one? Like, I love that you listed 100 women right away. You're like, really? Come on. That took me, I don't know how long that list took you, but imagine not very long, right? And say, hey, yeah. right. You I mean, let's, you called BS on it, which I loved. Which is why we're talking, because I was like, okay, Diana needs to come tell her story here. Um, Let's also talk about that only 2% of female CEOs are getting funded. What's what's that about? What's your take on that? I mean, that is a huge part of what the problem is right now. I feel like the the venture capital community is still operating off all these old norms, and they basically, like, pattern match for looking for a new entrepreneur that looks like someone Mm -hmm. that they've invested in that has been successful in the Mm -hmm. past. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, it's the women are just pitted against this impossible standard because obviously they're not going to look like that. Mm -hmm. Then there's the whole notion that, you know, you, in order to relate to an idea, you have to be a user of that product. And so all of these women businesses that are, you know, women are 60% of consumers and they're, you know, making many of the household decisions about purchasing and they're a great percentage of online shopping. 
but the the males are the the venture partners are ninety percent males, mm-hmm. and so when you come in with some kind of concept, um, like the Jess Lee from Sequoia was talking about when she was pitching Polyvore, which was a, a clothing concept that was it was kind of like Pinterest. It was you would like clip things from all over the internet and put sort of style sets together of like shoes and clothes and accessories. And then you could, they were actually clickable and viable. And, you know, people that she talked to male venture capitalists just said like, I just don't see this. I don't see that being an entertaining activity to like make these sets. And she was like, you know, she held up these big stacks of like, Vogue magazines. And she said, do you know why advertisers spend millions of dollars to get themselves glossy ads in these magazines? It's because this is like an activity for women and they're all doing it. And, you know, she just said there was just this huge, like blank look at her. Um, And so until we get more women that are on the decision-making side of the table, I think that's going to be that's going to be tricky for women to convince them that these ideas are, you know, mainstream, powerful ideas. Also, and this goes back to the whole confidence issue, many venture capitalists point out, and there's also been research on this, that women, they, when they pitch in a, in a, um, in a meeting of their concept, they do not pitch the big dream. They caveat everything. They go down these rat holes of like the worst case scenario Mm -hmm. rather than this kind of puffed up, you know, you, to some extent you, you are selling the dream. You're Mm -hmm. selling something that doesn't exist. You're, you have to paint something that's, um, overstated to some extent. That's how you sell. And that's just a place that women are really uncomfortable and that's one of the things like there's great organizations right now, all raise is one and they're it's a group of women venture capitalists and they have these very specific targets of how many um, women they want to get funding and how many women they want to become partners and firms. And some of the things that they're doing is like one-on-one mentoring and very specifically on the pitch mm-hmm. and how you, you know, bring in the big idea and how you sell the big idea and stand behind that, you know, comfortably. Yeah. And and like I said, Diana, I am deeply hopeful. I do think, you know, you said your daughter came out ready to go. <laughs> She's going to take on the world. And I do have a lot of hope for uh, our kids and what's what they're going to see as possible. But I think, you know, with more conversations with women like Melinda Gates, who I saw that she's offered to fund, I think maybe it was four, four women-backed companies. She wanted, she was looking for that. And more women uh, angel investors and more women in venture capital. Like, it's it's going to take time and more conversations and more awareness, but things will change. But uh, what you talked about with you know, the messaging and this level of perfectionism on the kids themselves now, though, I think is so critical. And you actually wrote an article on parenting for the Washington Post that I found that I, it brought me to tears. Um, I, I, um, I'd i love it if you could tell the story, but um, you wrote some letters to your daughter every year. And um, now that is she in college yet, Diana? She She's a senior in high school. So okay. She's- 
pushing send on our applications today. Okay. So can you tell this story of what you've done and what she reflected back to you on how these letters have helped her? Yeah. So it's actually one of like my proudest things, which is, and I don't even really know why I started doing this. I, but one time when she was not turning one, I decided I'd write a letter to her and talk about like describe everything she was about at that age to try to kind of like freeze that age for her so that when she got older, she would have these letters. And then I just kept doing it every year. And I have three kids, but for whatever odd reason, I only did it for one of my three kids. And um, she, now these letters are like, she reads them like tea leaves. She's a teenager and her identity is something that she's wrestling with as all teenagers are. And she's always looking back in these letters to kind of look at like, who was I, you know, in the beginning and what are the strains that are like really me? And what are the things that you saw early on that are just basically, you know, my core being. And she, she relies on kind of these descriptions to remind her that, you know, yes, you are all these things, even during this time right now, when you're feeling really insecure about yourself and you really don't know who you are. And I'm telling you, these letters, they're all crumpled up now because they Mm. come out. I see them on her bedstand and, you know, she reads them a lot. And I, I love reading them too, because I, you know, you think you'll remember, but Mm -hmm. you don't. Mm -hmm. And so they're basically just like stream of consciousness, two or three tight single space letters for each year that is just like everything you are right now. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you about you. And so now, you know, she, she really does. They really do mean the world to her and it's been a huge connection between us. And I wish I had them for all my kids. Mm -hmm. And I wrote the piece in the time, I mean, in the Washington post, because I really hope other parents read that and do it because Mm -hmm. It's just the greatest thing to have all those little details um, that go, that take you back to those times. And, you know, particularly for a teenage girl, when Mm -hmm. she's really in the, in the throes of kind of feeling lost, I think it's grounding for her to remember that, you know, you've always been this brave little girl Mm -hmm. who, you know, she was like swinging from the trees and she was belaying outside her bedroom window and she loved to, you know, ride her bike by herself to the rock climbing gym. And she, you know, would come home and say like, that's my favorite part of the day. And just to remember all those things about herself when she feels shaky, you know? Love, I do love it so much. And I think maybe part of why I was sad was that I was doing something somewhat similar in a journal, but not giving it to my daughter and then collecting like her birthday uh, invitations and the uh, the Christmas cards just to create a collection of that. And after reading that, I'm like, I'm going to get back to it. It doesn't matter if I've missed a few years in between now, you know? It, it definitely doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've missed. She'll be so happy to have Yeah, and I want to remember. Yeah, like what you said, reading it with her reminds you, because you do think you're going to remember, and then then it gets a little more fuzzy. So, um, you know, I didn't ask you in the book, is there a formula? I haven't had a chance yet, but I will be getting your book. But is there a... Um, formula to, not a formula, that's not the right word, but is there a format to the book that's consistent throughout where you ask standard questions of each of the um, women that you interviewed? I did have like a set of questions that I asked each of the women, but they were just like, 
kind of quick lightning round type getting warmed up in the interview. So that was like, I asked each woman, you know, your first job, your GPA, your favorite candy, you know, advice to your 13 year old self, something you have to have in your house that you can't live without. But the, the stories themselves, like they really aren't formulaic. And I just, I was just following whatever were like the most important and interesting incidents whatever they told me that really stuck with me and I would want to like retell a friend about this person, you know, highlighting those most important and most fun and most surprising, you know, moments in their journeys and their journey stories, you know, so they're all different. Everyone has a really different journey. Mm -hmm. And I, so I didn't worry about having any particular type of, you know, formula. I do have in the back of the book, I have, four chapters that are um, teaching girls how to read financial statements, mm-hmm. like very simple ones for a bra company called Yellowberry that actually was founded by a teenager and she mm-hmm. ended up not going to college and now she's, her business is doing really well. Um, and then I have um, a, like instructions for writing a one page business plan and some different um, ideas for how to brainstorm a business idea. And I highlight a couple of teen entrepreneurs and then a few other kind of just good skills to know, like, you know, how, what is a patent and how, how would you file one or how do you get a web domain and give an elevator pitch and, you know, what's a venture capitalist and what is debt. So I think it's really great for, for young people to know what these things are. Cause I think, what makes you confident is when you're in the know. Mm -hmm. And so just the more you can know about money and about business and just how the world works and, you know, the terminology, I just think is really affirming and confidence building. I love it, Diana. I love what you've created with this book. Um, So let me turn it to you now. How do you define success? I'm struggling with that right now because I'm trying to figure out with this book, like, you know, short of it becoming a bestseller, like, what do I want out of this? And what are the metrics that I should use? And, you know, I guess success for me is, is when I see these pictures of little girls that people are sending me or, you know, even 20 somethings, and they're, they have their head in the book. And I know that they're going to take something from it, and that it's going to inspire them in some way. And I just really want for them to find what I finally found when I became a writer after having like all these other jobs is to find something that they love doing. And that's what success is for me is to find a way to use your skills and talents so that you are satisfied and so that you're also doing something for the world that's positive for others and use your platform in that way. And I don't think it's impossible to achieve that, but I think it's hard. And so I think you have to you know, ask the hard questions and you have to like quit jobs when they're not working out and be willing to start new. Like I started after business school, becoming a writer and writing these little tiny, like pitching, you know, blindly pitching the San Francisco Chronicle for their like best of the day section. Mm. And my husband used to tease me like you would you know, you would spend like three hours writing one paragraph. And I was like, I'd spend like three days writing one paragraph because I really wanted to break into journalism and I didn't have any like entree in. And so just like these women have shown me, and I think I've shown myself is 
it's very doable to like start with nothing and start at the very beginning and break into something. It just takes like a lot of hard work and being scrappy. And, and I think success is when you can find something you love to do and give back at the same time. Love it. Um, so I sometimes ask my guests, what advice would you go back and give your 20 something self? But now I'm curious, let's ask your, what would you, what advice would you give your 13 something self? Since that's what you asked the women uh, that you interviewed. I think I would just say like to have opinions and to defend your opinions and feel free to state your opinions. Like I was sort of like, oh, there would always be a lot of political conversation at the dinner table. And I would sort of, I was taking it all in, but I would be kind of afraid to actually say what I think. Mm. And, you know, and I would just urge myself at that age to just like go ahead and like make yourself vulnerable and stick your neck out and say what you actually think. And you might be surprised, you know, other people might agree with you or you'll learn something when you have to defend your view. Um, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And what advice do you think your 80 year old self would give you? Mm -hmm. God, just to like, sometimes to just take time to smell the flowers Mm -hmm. and be in the moment. And I feel like many people my age, like a kind of crazed mom (laughs) who's I'm raising three kids and I'm trying to do my career and I'm like addicted to the, to the devices because I'm posting on social and trying to get this thing going. And, you know, I just feel very wrapped up in the craziness of life. And I wish I would just remember that the things that matter are all about relationships and just like spending good time with your friends and your family and none of the rest of it matters. It just doesn't. Mm-hmm. Very wise. Um, can you leave um, all of us le- uh, listening with your three best tips for living a good life? My three best tips for living a good life is have a steady running group like I have and I running group in quotes because it could be a group you walk with or you have coffee with but I meet 10 women about five mornings a week and we've been doing this for two decades they're called my early morning crew EMC and they are literally like the scaffolding that my life hangs on and I believe we will grow old and live in tiny houses next door to each other Um, and I just think having sort of that kind of community, I think is just absolutely necessary to having a good life. I think, um, I think I was struck with, it was kind of related, but I I lost my mom two years ago and she lived in Washington with my dad. They lived in the same town for 50 years and they had such deep ties to the community and to their friendships that had lasted for so many decades. And that is really what you need when you get to that phase in life is like everyone just leaned in to supporting my dad and to being there for my mom and for all of them, like living in those later years together. Um, I just heard this amazing story about this woman who's moving into kind of like an elder care facility with 10 of her college friends. Oh my goodness. um, Females. And I, I think it's going to be my next book if I can like track down the story and spend enough time with mm-hmm. them. It's in Washington, D.C. So have deep ties in your community and like maybe stay in one place for long enough to have that. 
And then I guess the last thing to have a good life is um, just enjoy your kids because they're incredible and don't spend so much time telling them what to do and being busy and um, I don't know, like having tension with them, but rather like figure out time, good time to spend together, however that is, because that just lasts forever. And it's like the best thing. It really is. This has been such a pleasure, Diana. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you've created. I, like I said, I'm looking mm. forward to getting a copy for my daughter and to read it myself. Um, these are all women that I uh, have either heard on um, how I built this or, you know, I've been very aware of their stories. So it'll be really a great read. So I'm looking forward to that. Where can people learn more about you and your work, Diana? Where can I direct them? You can, they can follow at girls who run the world book on Instagram. They can go to my website, which is www.dianacapp.com. And there's, you know, a section on my events and more about the book and the backstory on the book and some of the great illustrations they can find there. The book is available at indie bookstores and Powell's online, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. But I would say the first place to go is go into your local bookstore and try to get it there because we need those places to survive. Absolutely. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. I really hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. All of the show notes can be found over at thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash 053. And while you're there, I hope that you'll take a second to join our community. As a thank you, you'll get a list of 52 self-care tips, one for every week of the year. And you'll also receive a weekly email with inspirations and tips for living a happy and fulfilled life. So thanks again for tuning in and I look forward to reconnecting next Wednesday. Bye for now.